You're listening to the City World Radio Network. High definition digital radio broadcasting from the city to the world. www.cityworldradio.com. Good afternoon. Welcome to Intelligent Talk with Ralph McElvenny. Join us every Thursday at 5 p.m. on the City World Radio Network as we discuss topics in politics, art, and current events. Okay, uh, welcome to Intelligent Talk. The website is intelligenttalk.com. We're here with Professor Nathan Stoltzfus. I'm sorry, did I pronounce that right, uh, Stoltzfus, yes. Stoltzfus, okay, thank you. Uh, um, well, anyway, um, thank you so much for coming on the program today. Oh, I'm glad to be here. Thank you. So we're here um, to discuss uh, a great book that you wrote, one that I, I've known about for quite some time and kn- knew the story, and it fascinates me. The book is called that you wrote is called Resistance of the Heart. It's on the Rosenstrasse protests. Um, it's a protest that occurred in during Nazi Germany, and we'll let, get into the details of that and let you um, obviously describe it better than I can. But just to go back to it, I, I think you um, got started doing research for this book in 1985. Is that right? Yes, that's right. How did you find out about this story, if I could, and how did you uh, get into this um, this area on it? I was at, uh, at Harvard University uh, looking for... Um, a research topic for my Fulbright fellowship, and uh, a professor said there had been this protest by non-Jewish women for their Jewish husbands who had been arrested and slated for dispatch from Berlin. And uh, he was very conservative about the possibility of what I might find. He said, maybe there are letters, maybe there are children you can speak to. It's true that there aren't many documents that bear directly on this protest by these uh, Aryan or non-Jewish women on behalf of their Jewish husbands in February and March of 1943, but uh, there is uh, enough context and uh, there are some uh, direct sources on that. So uh, that's how I got started, and another professor at the time said, well, you don't need a whole Fulbright year for that, maybe six months, and you'll move on to something else. Okay, yeah, and I was so interested. Actually, I went to Rosenstrasse Street in Berlin, and the building is no longer there where these protests occurred, but you can see the actual street, and, of course, there's a plaque. But I just want to use Rosenstrasse as like a sort of a macro view for looking at protests in Nazi Germany in general. And if I could, I just wanted to start with um, originally the, the so-called mercy killings that the Catholic Church protested. Um, and th- these were killings of retarded children, basically, that were being killed with gas. And they were later sort of the precursor for the mobile gas fans that the Germans used to kill Jews and others. Um, th- th- that protest that occurred there, um, which, by the way, Ian Kershaw said Hitler did not put in writing. He was reluctant to put things into writing. And only later did he put it into writing. Um, that was co- Would you say that was kind of like the first major protest against killings in Nazi Germany, the Catholic Church protests? Bishop Hudel? I think that was, but they were protesting initially well, uh, okay, we, we can protest is a very broad word. Bishop Sproul in his, uh, in his diocese actually refused to allow sterilizations in his hospital. The only Catholic bishop. Many of these hospitals, as well as schools, were administered by the Catholic Church but functioned as public schools and public hospitals. And uh, Bishop uh, Sproul 
was the only bishop who said, you know, not in my hospital. So that can be counted as a protest. Already uh, this uh, sterilization law was uh, put into effect, promulgated in July or June, uh, mid-1933. So uh, following that, a significant protest happened when the regime tried to remove crucifixes. Ian Kershaw, you mentioned, also writes about that again, from Catholic schools, which were functioning, functioning as public schools. And uh, <clears throat> in Oldenburg, in the mid-1930s, this uh, erupted into a protest of, of Catholics who were convinced, uh, some of them at least, uh, according to their statements, thought that Hitler was on their side and that there were only local and regional officials who were trying to go behind his back and have their crucifixes removed. The interesting part of that or, you know, is that uh, Hitler had to look out for his image. He wanted to have authority and not just the levers of power. So uh, he was the Fuhrer, somebody who represented the goals of so many Germans, and each of these Germans in all their various corners of Germany had to think that uh, they shared the same idea of Germany that Hitler did. So Hitler uh, did not uh, want to be connected, as you just mentioned, with uh, controversial decisions. That's partly why he was reluctant to put things in writing. He did leave it up to his uh, regional satraps, the Gauleiters, to, uh, and their staff to introduce region by region, locale by locale, these directives to remove crucifixes from Catholic schools and also to replace them with Hitler's picture, not a subtle uh, substitute, as well as incur on Catholic traditions of religious instructions in Catholic schools. So these protests began already in the mid-1930s and continued through uh, a major protest again on behalf of of uh, crucifixes in schools against the decree removing them in 1941 in Bavaria. Okay, and um, just going back to the uh, protest against the, the so-called mercy killing of these German children, I believe something like 70,000 were killed. They did stop it when the when the bishops protested. Then I think unofficially they did continue it, so it was, it was not successful. It was officially discontinued, but unofficially I think something like 200,000 more children were killed even after that. So, And I believe that Hitler had plans after the war to sort of remake the church in his own image. He was going to sort of do a, a Henry VIII, if you will, and try to remake it in his own image. Is that fair to say? Well, Hitler wanted to make the Protestant church into a national church the way Henry VIII had made uh, Protestantism a national church in Britain. The Catholics he was uh, going to handle in a different way, uh, bring them in with the majority Protestants in some way. Uh, certainly uh, he realized that he had to get to the hearts and minds of the Germans in a way that he didn't bother doing with with the communists, for example, the political parties, the oppositions, the Marxist parties, and also the, what he called the political Catholics. He really uh, treated brutally right at the beginning, arresting uh, the leaders, uh, throwing them in concentration camps, and and really routing the parties so that by mid-1933, uh, within a half a year of taking office, the Nazi party was the only party. But the church had suffused public consciousness far more than uh, 
uh, and the allegiance ran far deeper and over generations, uh, so that uh, uh, Hitler did not suppose that he could uh, just take over the churches and their positions, the allegiances that Germans had to their uh, prelates by arresting the prelates and, and throwing them in jail the way that he had with political leaders. Uh, rather, he wanted to use the political leaders to, uh, to, to his advantage if he could just get them to collaborate with him. Okay. Um, now, obviously, the Rosenstrauss protests concerns, as you said, people who were uh, married to non-Jewish people. And we talk, you talk about in your book about um, Jewish intermarriage was something like 44% in 1933, and then it goes down to, I think, 15%, you said, in 1934, obviously under pressure from all the anti-Semitism and all the propaganda of the regimes. Um, but certain exceptions for Jews married to non-Jews and um, like half Jews um, were allowed. Like for example, Mark David Riggs wrote a book called Hitler's Hitler's Jewish Soldiers. Goering's deputy, for example, Milch was Jewish, and there were other examples of of Jews who fought uh, for the Third Reich. Indeed, you have a thing about um, in your book about a person named Goldberg who was put on the front page of a of a German newspaper as basically the ideal Aryan, and he was half Jewish, I believe. That's right. That's right. right. So so we have this um, this interesting area where we have these. Um, there's not uh, specifically, but the, the Nuremberg Laws, I think you said, it, it doesn't nullify pre-existing marriages to non-Jews, to Jews and non-Jews. It basically stops inter-Jewish marriage, uh, but doesn't nullify pre-existing marriages. So they have that sort of that, that distinction. Right. To go back, uh, to finish a previous conversation, the, the Halt Decree on the uh, euthanasia that Hitler ordered in August of 1941 really did uh, radically alter. It wasn't just that it was uh, closed down uh, briefly, the euthanasia, but the, the methods in which this euthanasia was carried out after that were such, and, and the targeted groups were such that they didn't raise protests among the uh, so-called uh, uh, the precious German-blooded persons. Uh, so uh, it, was a ma- it was a major difference in terms of tactics and target that the uh, Hitler's decree of August 1941 made. Now, in terms of the Nuremberg Laws, the fact that they did not overturn existing marriages had to do with the regime sensitivity to popular opinion. At that point, divorce within Germany was something about like 9%. It was a very rare occasion. The churches, of course, did not sanction it. And so uh, the regime was uh, loath to uh, nullify uh, marriages. It also didn't serve their purposes. What they wanted was for a Jew and a non-Jew to actually abandon each other. And this had to be done voluntarily rather than just commanded from above. So when the regime left these existing intermarriages intact, it assumed that they would shake apart under pressure, as you mentioned, of the Gestapo, of uh, threats, of uh, especially once deportation began, especially once Jews had to move into Jewish houses. Uh, there's a famous uh, diary, the famous uh, Jew, Victor Klemper, in that we see that his wife, Ava, follows him into a Jewish house in Dresden. And uh, it turns out that uh, uh, well over 90% of these intermarried non-Jews married to Jews did not divorce. 
And uh, the reason that is important is, uh, one of the reasons, uh, once the uh, signal, the signal of why it's important to the regime is that once deportations began, the regime deported any Jew whose non-Jewish partner divorced them, uh, inter- uh, it deported these uh, Jews at once. And uh, uh, so under pressures from the Gestapo, from society above all, uh, people who felt like these uh, intermarried non-Jews were thumbing their nose at the at this grand society Hitler was building, and that them that they themselves uh, there was a lot of pressure for them to divorce. They didn't, but when they did, the regime felt free to remove them and send them off to the camps. Now there was a a discussion in wake of uh, the Vance conference that uh, why doesn't the regime, uh, the Deputy Interior Secretary Wilhelm Stuckart proposed that, oh, we'll just annul these intermarriages and then they'll be divorced and then we can deport the Jewish partner. And uh, the uh, Goebbels, the propaganda minister, and uh, uh, the uh, acting uh, Schlegelberger, the acting justice minister, said that's not going to work because what we want is a separation. We can declare them divorced, but they're still going to be living together. If we try to take the Jew, the non-Jew will fall follow and will uh, be reaching into the uh, non-Jewish circle uh, involving non-Jews in the Jewish persecution. And here's again a way in which the euthanasia persecution and protests were related. That is, uh, in euthanasia, the regime learned that the family members were the ones who learned, who cared enough to find out that the natural causes that the regime were attributing to the deaths of their family members who were uh, euthanized, that they, that they just weren't, weren't factual. And uh, so the suspicions and the rumors began around uh, family members of victims. And uh, when the uh, deportations of Jews began, the regime was careful to uh, deport them family by family and not to break up families who would, uh, with, with members remaining behind to ask and uh, make troublesome uh, scenes or questions about what happened to their uh, Jewish partners who had been uh, sent off to the East. Okay. I just want to go back and just ask you two questions. Are you familiar with the, the book, Hitler's Jewish Soldiers, the, the Mark David Ritz? Yes. Do you, think that's yes. A, uh, do, do you think that's a good book? Is that something you've I found? do think it's a good book. I think uh, that, uh, like any book, it may have uh, weaknesses. I don't have it in mind right now, but I've I do think it's uh, that he did tremendous research, and that uh, uh, and that uh, it's absolutely true that uh, Hitler actually Aryanized certain Mischling who had served the National Socialist cause without knowing they were Jewish. I think those were the criteria that uh, they both had to have outstanding records and and be able to claim that they didn't know that they were Jewish, and then he could Aryanize them. However. Their Aryan identification uh, cards were still on a different color paper. It's interesting too, and also there was an exemption too. Hitler had to retreat. I think if you were a Jewish soldier from World War One and you had won the Iron Cross under pressure from Hindenburg, he had to continue with the um, the payments to them, uh, and that that's something he tried to discontinue. But he he had to reverse himself on that policy too. So I guess there were certain areas that he was he was able to go back on if he was forced to. Hitler had checked. Um, at least by Hindenburg, when Hindenburg was still alive, in regards to Jewish veterans. 
Right, exactly. Well, I don't know if Hitler saw it as being forced. He could see that Hindenburg was 85 or 6 and was going to uh, die, and he humored him for the time being, and it was just totally in line with Hitler's tactics that he didn't move faster than what opinion or powerful elites would accept once opinion came on board and Hitler had some spectacular feats on the international stage, then uh, the elites went along anyway. It's really, I, I believe it was a Jewish officer who actually recommended Hitler for the Iron Cross, just as an aside. What an interesting, uh, that he would he would try to hurt them right. like that when he had been arrested. But anyway, going back to the Rosenstrasse right. uh, protest. Um, so February, March, 1943, Rosenstrasse Street in Berlin. Could you tell me approximately uh, how many people were arrested, how many people protested? I know it built over a period of time. Right, that's a good point. That <clears throat> there were some seventeen, eighteen hundred to two thousand in this Rosenstrasse building, which was a uh, administrative center of the Jewish community, community in central Berlin, around the corner from the central Berlin Gestapo offices on the Burgstrasse. So uh, this was <clears throat> brought into service as a temporary holding center before deportation for these uh, some up to 2,000 uh, intermarried Jews wearing the Star of David. There were also some half-Jews who wore the Star of David. That is, uh, the Nuremberg Laws divided half-Jews, so-called, into uh, so-called Geltungsjuden, those who counted as Jews, and those who uh, were not considered to be Jewish. They did that on the basis of whether they married a Jew or belonged to the Jewish community, not on the basis of race, by the way. So uh, there were some, uh, about a hundred or so of those in the Rosenstrasse. Outside, the uh, I, I talked to somebody who was there the evening of the first arrest, uh, February 27th, a very dark uh, evening of Sabbath, uh, and uh, they, the women gathered. There were more than maybe a couple dozen, but some of them came together, found each other, and agreed to come, the, come early the next day and make a scene. And in the uh, testimony of a court trial, uh, there is a woman who said that she came early the next morning, I think around 7 o'clock, and already as she approached Rosenstrasse, the uh, 2 to 4, she heard voices calling, give us our husbands back, we want our husbands back. So these women had agreed on the night before and came early the next day uh, when they were sure their husbands would still be there. Others, like uh, Werner Goldberg you mentioned, he and his brother took turns watching the door of the Rosenstrasse building so they would know whether or not their father had actually been taken or left the, the uh, this uh, collection center. Do you know at its height how many protesters there were outside Rosenstrasse streets, like some estimate as to the greatest number of... Well, I read that uh, British News said 500. This was written by a source in East Germany, some have said two to three hundred. That's a number that uh, somehow has gotten currency about how many were there at any given time. Of course, since this went on continuously, day and night, over a course of a week, uh, there is this uh, possibility that there were uh, thousands altogether, uh, not, not at once, but uh, who were there. 
uh, obviously we, we, we have to calculate based on the number of Jews in, in the Rosenstrasse. If there were 2,000 and each of them had someone come out, which probably didn't, but many of them had uh, one or two or three come out for them, and there were even some Germans who were happy to find a pretext for protesting who joined in and didn't have relatives there. I just made connection with somebody in New York who fits that uh, category. Why, why? Uh, not being related to the Jews, but still being among the protesters. Just two questions, if I could ask. Number one, just basically, why were these protests successful? Why, weren't the, why wasn't the crowd dispersed and arrested? And number two, did the defeat in Stalingrad, which is basically the wiping out of the Sixth Army, some 300,000 people, um, did that also play into this too? Was Hitler weakened by that? And was that, did that have any effect upon how they reacted to these protests, do you think? Well, let me start with the second part of the question. That's a, a common interpretation that Stalingrad was decisive. I think at least as important, if, if not more important, was the bombing of Berlin, which had just been sort of cut in half with uh, uh, severe bombing on the uh, sort of uh, celebratory day of the Luftwaffe, the German Air Force. And uh, if you read Goebbels' diaries, he's, of course, concerned about Stalingrad, but he's very concerned about his Berliners and how they're uh, doing with uh, being bombed out of their homes. And uh, he later tells his uh, propaganda deputies to talk about how people were on the streets around central Berlin because so many had been bombed out of their houses, presumably a kind of a cover for uh, the protest. Now, uh, the fact is that there's a deeper reason, you know, the deepest reason here is that these intermarried non-Jews had shown since 1933 that they were willing to do whatever they had to do uh, to uh, stay with their Jewish partners, in this case husbands, and that uh, they had been through so much and had just astonished or at least surprised the Nazi officials at every turn when the Nazis turned up the pressure and began, as I said, to, uh, after Kristallnacht, uh, everyone who was Jewish in Germany had a new idea about the importance of uh, how important it was to leave Germany. The Gestapo started to call these uh, women in one by one to try to persuade and cajole them into uh, divorcing terrorize them. Uh, this only escalated. It was uh, ineffective, and this was uh, another attempt to intimidate these German women into abandoning their Jewish husbands. As I said, this was the key. The regime always deported immediately a Jewish uh, partner if their non-Jewish partner divorced, agreed to a divorce. So uh, there was a great deal of intimidation in this arrest. The SS was involved. Leibstein, Dr. Hitler, the most elite group of uh, the SS, was actually involved for the first two days in arresting and brutally rounding up and uh, causing scenes of uh, great brutality uh, that were normally avoided in in the arrests of, of Jews. So... Uh, and then another context, of course, is, is Hitler's desire for authority. This was the central uh, focus of the regime, Hitler's image as the Fuhrer. And Hitler wanted not just the levers of power, but within the Reich, he wanted authority. Among his German-blooded, so-called valuable 
Aryans, he wanted to have uh, consent based on their belief that he was shot in the better way than their old Christianized traditions. And and uh, his image had to remain very broad so that many people from many different areas and walks of life in Germany could project onto him what they wanted in a Fuhrer. And also, uh, this caused him, as you said, to uh, not put a lot in writing, to have plausible deniability, and uh, on certain occasions to give way so that uh, there was no sign of dissent. Uh, often, uh, you know, a mechanism of Hitler's power was this uh, notion among Germans that if only the Fuhrer knew, he would set things right. There was this belief of just Fuhrer, and that if something was wrong, if somebody didn't like something, it wasn't the Fuhrer's fault, it was the underling's fault. So uh, the, 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 this context also, as well as uh, the intermarried women and how they refused to go along with the regime, noncompliance and protest since 1933, helped to explain the deep background. Certainly, I agree about Stalingrad. In fact, uh, I, it's clear that the regime feels like it can use force to a greater extent when it's winning its battles than when it's losing its battles. Right. Uh, of course, I would, I would also note that Sophie Scholl had her head chopped off in February of 43 around this time just for handing out literature um, at a university. So obviously the, the yeah. Nazi regime was capable of, of taking very decisive action even after Stalingrad, around the time of Stalingrad was collapsing. So it by no means was defanged by Stalingrad. But I just have to mention right. that because some people have, of course, uh, said that. But uh, so obviously yeah. th- th- these There's protests... There's a different type of action that they're taking. Uh, a conspiratorial action calling for the demise of the regime is not the same as... Uh, women gathering on the streets demanding only the reunification with family members. Right. But, of course, it was still sort of a protest of the regime, so it's sort of a long... It's still sort of a challenge to the regime policies, at least. And in any any case, I mean, they they were successful, amazingly enough. The Rosenstrauss protests were successful, and they actually... It's not the only one. It's a different form of action. Also, in October of 1943, 300 women, this is according to Gestapo secret police report, SD report, 300 women in the rural area uh, demanded that they should be getting their uh, ration cards right there in Witten, where they lived, and not only in their evacuation sites out in Baden somewhere. They wanted to come back to be with their families in Witten, and the regime uh, appeased them, too. And in January of 1944, several months later, Hitler instructed the Gauleiters, his regional satraps, do not try to use distribution of of food rations to uh, control the behavior of these women. It's not the appropriate means. He said, you've got to educate these Germans so that they understand what National Socialism is up to and they understand it's in their own good. This is what he was uh, uh, kept coming back to. So it's a very different form of action. Uh, somebody uh, conspiratorially, and this is what uh, Leopold Guter, I talked to him, emphasized, if somebody's out on the street with their Dasein, their existence, you know exactly who it is, you know what they're seeking. It's not the same as somebody acting conspiratorially. Certainly the major point is that they're not calling for the demise of the regime. And Guter also emphasized that the reason that these protesters weren't arrested is because they were non-Jewish. If you arrested them, you'd probably have, he said, if you arrested them, you would have their relatives coming out. They weren't concerned about protests by Jews. They didn't have any agency. 
but uh, the regime trying to keep a very clear line between the Jews and the non-Jews on ter- in terms of who was being persecuted, who was being carted off, uh, had to uh, set aside these intermarried couples until the non-Jewish partner agreed to divorce. Yes, you covered the Witten protest, October 43. I was going to ask you about that, but obviously you covered that. So in just looking at this then from a, from a broad level, given that the Witten protest and the Rosenstrauss protest were successful, and as you said, they were, they were um, so-called Aryans, non-Jews protesting, does this mean that you would agree with someone like Daniel Goldhagen who wrote that book, Hitler's Willing Executioners, that essentially the German people were responsible in general for allowing, this, allowing these things to happen because they could have stopped it if there had been protests? I mean, is that something that would play into that theory? Then uh, these protests? No, I wouldn't uh, wouldn't say that because first of all, these people who protested had very specific motivations not shared by others, and these German women who were married to non-Jews preferred not to be political at all. I remember one Elsa Holzer said she's not a fighter, even let alone a politically motivated fighter. But if she has to, she will and. Uh, and this was an action she took from the heart. That's why I call it a resistance of the heart. It's a resistance of affect and not okay. of you know, political consciousness. Well, what what conclusions then do we draw then from the Rosenstrauss protests that basically that's of importance? I mean, what I guess the question is, what protest was possible in Nazi Germany before or after Stalingrad? And what what could have been done that maybe wasn't done by people that could have stopped some of these killings? Well, the the clearest lesson is that these poor women and and a few more men who were and a lesser number of men who were married to Jews had to learn to non-cooperate and protest from the beginning. Step by step, they took to learn how to resist. The others, without that motivation, step by step, they learned to comply, and they found it very hard to draw the line. If you're a person, where do you draw the line uh, when they come to ask you to make crematoria or uh, before? Uh, at some point, uh, this these uh, people were dancing off in different directions, and uh, a, a uh, the regime was extraordinarily responsive to uh, popular opinion, not only because of Hitler's fear of the home front unrest, uh, which he attributed to uh, the defeat of Germany to in World War One, he also wanted to uh, really collectively bring the people over to a Nazi conscience and to Nazi believers. So he wanted to change them from the attitude up, and he wanted to convince them uh, that he had the better way and, and, and be a leader of authority and not just, and this is not outside of the Aryan or German-blooded population, but within his own sort of racial cohort. He wanted to be a leader that uh, people uh, followed willingly, uh, yes, once they once their attitudes had changed to match his, once they thought like him, they would also act like him. Okay. Um well, I guess I, uh, several more questions. But I'll just go back to the Rosenstrauss for one second. When they do release these people, when the protests are in fact successful, these um, th- they're released. I, I know you you quote Goebbels' diary quite a bit. Um, w- w- I mean, w- who was behind the release? Who was the actual person who released? Who ordered the release? Do you remember? Oh yeah, well Goebbels did, and uh, but he within three days went to 
Hitler and uh, visited Hitler and said, you know, these psychological problems were caused and uh, I released some Jews and it's not complete. <clears throat> and Hitler, and I checked this diary, uh, in between uh, March the 6th, when Goebbels releases the Jews, according to his diary, and March the 9th, when he visited visits Hitler, uh, he mentions Guterer, uh, the person I interviewed, and Guterer looked at the diaries and said, yes, that, uh, so uh, Goebbels takes this issue of uh, releasing Jews to Hitler and clears it, however Hitler instructs him, but you still have to make uh, Berlin uh, free of Jews. The interesting part there is each Gauleiter was responsible for making his own region free of Jews, and they were also in charge of defining who was Jewish or not. In April, the following month, uh, Goebbels says, I've still got people running around the streets of Berlin wearing the Star of David. Either I have to take the star off of them or I've got to get them out of here. Okay. Because uh, I need to call this uh, city free of Jews. And just for the audience, the Gauleiter is essentially a, a mayor, right? It sounds like be a Nazi-appointed mayor of a city. Yeah, more like a, a county leader, a regional, uh, provincial leader. Um, okay. Yes. How, maybe it's a governor. Do you have any idea how many of these Rosenstrauss Jews who were let out, how many of them survived the war? All of them survived oh. that I know of, and uh, they did this without going into hiding. Why would they go into hiding? Because it had turned out that being with their partners was their best defense against being deported. There's one interesting incident where a uh, Catholic is about to divorce his non uh the Jewish partner, and uh, the Jewish partner, I think, is baptized uh, Catholic, and the the uh, church authorities say, well, the way not to be deported is stay together and don't divorce. They don't say, we have a better, we can protect you better within the church. Okay. They hadn't built up the same uh, authority over the matter. In fact, they were busy dividing their own congregants up into Aryan and non-Aryan Christians. So only these... Uh, non-Jewish married partners in mixed marriages uh, did this kind of uh, non-compliance and protest that allowed them the kind of uh, authority and identity that the regime really knew they'd have to uh, kill them too, or you know, and that they would make a huge scene in the process if they tried to deport them with their Jewish partners. Forgive me for trying to put this into a modern context, but um, I'll just first say, as I understand it, East Germany had more people watching the German citizens than, for example, Nazi Germany. I believe there were like four times as many minders uh, in, in terms of control, actually more surveillance in East Germany than there was in Nazi Germany. And I just say that then to segue into this question. If you're looking at countries like Iran or North Korea or China, authoritarian regimes today, and you're thinking about challenging them, does the Rosenstrauss protest give us any examples of what to do or any, any hope or any, any guidance on, on how regimes like that might be challenged, or, or, or is it not uh, that germane? Well, I think so. I think the Rosenstrauss protest is a vanguard not only of, of uh, modern dictatorships, that is, dictatorships who care about their image, but also a vanguard in terms of how these dictatorships can be confronted. Now, the difficulty with protest in the Third Reich was that it had to be uh, had to appear to be uh, unorganized. Certainly, the Rosenstrasse protest happened 
spontaneously, I think the Witten protests must have been orchestrated behind the backs quickly of, uh, of the regime, but there wasn't any leaders that could be identified as the people to take out, and then the, the protest would dispel. So uh, uh, that's, uh, you know, in China, uh, in the, uh, uh, throughout recent decades, uh, protest has proven effective uh, and sometimes ineffective, but what else is there if there's not the media? I think really protest in today's world represents the fifth estate. We have the media as the fourth estate. We have uh, in our own century uh, uh, what appears to be enthusiasm about a populist autocracy, popular autocrats like Putin and Erdogan, Urban in in Hungary. This is a this is a similar situation to uh, Hitler, and in that sense, Hitler was a vanguard of uh, how do you deal with popular people, uh, popular opinion, how to deal with the people once they're on the stage expecting to have a say, once democracy has been uh, approved of so widely. And uh, so uh, the problem with protest uh, arises when you get a Putin or Erdogan, and they're so popular that uh, repressing protest is also approved of by the great majority. Right, it's right. A, um, it's, it's, it remains the most important type of resistance, but it's, it's, it's very difficult once you get Putin and Erdogan with their, uh, you know, you can be sentenced uh, in, this, in either place for, for protesting. The power of uh, punishment is, is there, but it's backed by by popular majority opinion, and that's very difficult to have any resistance in that context. I, I know you didn't agree with me when I mentioned the Goldhagen Goldhagen book, um, but just to just try to bring you back to that. I mean, as you know, after the war, Eisenhower brought a lot of the Germans in to see the concentration camps on German soil. He forced them to, forced the German citizens to witness the atrocities that occur not not the main killing centers in Poland, but the the, the, the camps and actually on German soil like Dachau and places like that. Does it, so? What does this tell us? What does the Rosenstrauss protest say about what could have happened if more Germans had protested, more than you know non-Jewish Germans had protested against the atrocities? Does that mean that there would have been much less of them, and would it would, would there have just been a very different result in, in in that period if there had been more protests? Is that fair to say? I think so, of course. But you have to start in '33. The biggest uh, the biggest early opportunity was in uh, April 1933 when the regime sent out its uh, questionnaire, are you Aryan or not? And instead of people just throwing that away, everybody got busy very diligently uh, going to the church records to figure out who they were. And they had to go to the church records since uh, the secular state and marriage records had only begun in the 1880s under Bismarck. Uh, The records of the church went back further. The church could have said, for the churches, both of them, Protestant and Catholics, could have said, hey, this is private. This is off limits. We don't, uh, we're not allowing that for state use. Uh, but they weren't interested. So, the, you know, in a way, you're, it's a, it's a uh, hypothetical question. It is. Uh, of course you have uh, the possibility that Hitler wouldn't have happened if he hadn't been popular. That's why uh, he was invited in to be chancellor, because he was popular. And uh, once you get that popularity, Hitler realizes he's got to maintain it. He maintains it through its image. And uh, you don't have people early on protesting. Quite the contrary. You have uh, people early on. Uh, Hitler has to uh, reach out to protect the use of his name. 
uh, every square, every street, every cigarette is called uh, Hitler, and uh, uh, he he wants to, of course, uh, use that more wisely for propaganda reasons and also earn money from it. So uh, that's quickly restricted. Right. So popular, in other words, this is, of course, it's, uh, you know, so uh, everything is going the wrong way for uh, reversing it. If to bring Hitler into power, at what point uh, is he going to be uh, reversed? At what point is he going to be uh, seen as ineffective? Certainly what he does internationally, uh, taking back German pride, kicking the... Uh, uh, the Versailles Treaty, uh, the chains of Versailles, as it was called, uh, the shins kicking the uh, allies, and uh, really Germany standing up again, and uh, after the uh, remilitarization of the Rhineland in 1936, they're not as afraid of the French anymore as they had been. Right, so just as I sort of conclude this interview, let me just try to ask it like this then. Does the fact that there were not that many protests, obviously there was a Rosenstrauss and a Witten and Sophie Scholl was handing out subversive literature, but those, those two protests we talked about, the Witten and the Rosenstrauss, that, that, the fact that there were very few of those, does that then suggest that Hitler was, you know, just affirms that he was very popular and that these actions were popular with most of Germany? It wasn't fear that kept people from protesting, it was, it was popularity. Is, is that fair to say? Well, I think it was both. But uh, I, I, it turns out that these uh, people were quite capable of, uh, of pursuing something if they saw it in their own self-interest. There were surveys done afterward in a book uh, that uh, shows that uh, the vast majority of uh, the Germans, uh, according to these surveys after the war, did not really fear the Gestapo, that, that they made their peace, that uh, they felt secure, that they didn't feel like they had to express themselves, that they didn't really uh, feel like objecting to the regime. So uh, certainly fear played a role in cutting off opposition. There was no other game to play if you wanted to make a career, if you, uh, you, know, you went along with the Nazis, if you wanted to uh, uh, be a good person on the street, uh, fall in line and put up a flag when the FA march came through. It was... Uh, it was a movement that was sustained not just by popularity, but by the fact that all other movements had been cut off and there was um, nothing else to join. That's why public dissent is so much more important as a, I mean, as, that's why it's important to the regime as something not to, uh, where you don't decapitate public protesters, you decapitate Sophie Scholl. Uh, you know, if you have a public show of dissent by masses, uh, and that represents an opinion that that is, uh, is, 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 is all through society in a swath of people, then uh, you will, uh, you know, Hitler fears uh, that his movement will stop growing and moving forward if he uh, starts punishing those people uh, who publicly represent opinion that's well represented throughout society. Okay, well, Professor, well, as we wrap up, and I thank you so much for your time, is there any book you're working on now or research you're doing now as we speak? Well, yes, I'm uh, t particularly interested in, uh, in, in how the image of Hitler prevents us from really telling the facts about how, who Hitler was. There's a need to hold up Hitler as this symbol of evil, and how do we symbolize that? That's interesting, too. It seems that, uh, on the one hand, there's a, a temptation to call him demonic and outside of history. On the other hand... If we go to history, there is a big temptation to 
to see him as someone who just used force without any limits, objectly getting whatever he wanted by by brute force. I guess that's the way that evil is conceived, perceived, and and uh, conveyed. But Hitler, you know, is a three-dimensional person, and uh, I think we lose. Uh, we lose that when we when try to uphold this symbol, this two-dimensional monster or one-dimensional uh, person. So the impact of uh, popular images that have also infiltrated scholarship for various reasons and uh, uh, on, uh, on Hitler as a strategist and a politician, these have been underrated in favor of showing uh, the uh, sensationalist uh, you know, Gestapo with the jackboots and also the results of the July 20th, 1944 heroes who tried to uh, assassinate Hitler. Uh, these are the images that we have. The fact is that terror was used much more against anybody who wasn't German-blooded than against those the Germans were occupying than within Germany. Hitler had a totally different goal and totally different tactics uh, for how to relate to them. They were much more about cajoling and convincing or deceiving, uh, pulling out the rug from under them so they didn't really notice it and uh, uh, going along so that uh, it always appeared that the majority was uh, behind Hitler. That was the goal within the Reich among the German-blooded people, and, and Hitler never thought that uh, brute force could do that for him in total. Well, uh, thank you so much for, for uh, saying that. It's very interesting. Um, thank you so much for your time today. The book, of course, you wrote is called Resistance of the Heart, and um, we're IntelligentTalk.com. And thank you, Professor, for your time, and I, I wish you a good rest of the day. Well, thank you. Same to you. I was happy to be here. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Hi, I'm Janice Ian. Do you remember how excited you were at the start of summer every year and how the summer just started to drag on after a few months and you couldn't wait to get back to school, see your old friends, make new friends, get new books and a new locker and a clean slate? Well, you should have been excited about music class, too, because that was a special room where you went to sing, perform with your friends, and learn all kinds of interesting stuff about great composers, instruments, different kinds of music and songs. We remember our music teachers because they were so passionate about helping us learn to love music. They helped to spark a love for listening to notes and voices and rhythms that continues to enrich our lives even today. I bet your kids feel the same way about music class. Ask them. And make sure they get involved with music in school and in their lives. A PSA brought to you by MENC, the National Association for Music Education, and the National Anthem Project, the campaign to restore America's voice through music education. Music, part of a sound education. Today's entertainment has been brought to you in part by Galito's Restaurant. Galito's specializes in Portuguese cuisine. In addition to these delicacies, Galito's offers pasta, steaks, seafood, and chops. A full-service bar includes wines, beers, and spirits to complement your meal. Galito's offers casual ambiance at the bar or their dining room. Galitos also has a private banquet room for social events with a party package to accommodate your budget. Galitos also offers seasonal cafe seating. Galitos is located at 29 Elm Avenue in Mount Vernon, New York, conveniently located across from the Mount Vernon East train station. 
You can call Galitos at area code 914-668-0100. Once again, the number is area code 914-668-0100 for information on reservations. Or go to the website at www.galitosrestaurant.com. Enjoy your dining experience. Voted number one jazz cabaret club by New York Magazine, the Metropolitan Room is one of the most critically acclaimed venues in New York City and is known as the home for big-name talents and rising stars. Known as a celebrity hangout, the Metropolitan Room is a high-end cabaret and jazz club and brings the best in live music to New York City every night of the week. Fabulous award-winning Broadway, TV, film, and radio performers take the stage in an intimate 115-seat elegant venue. Aside from the great highly professional artistic shows and audience, Metropolitan Room provides an exceptional appetizer and dessert menu as well as exotic and specialty drinks prepared by top New York City bartenders. The Metropolitan Room is located at 34 West 22nd Street, Conveniently located near public transportation. For information or reservations, call area code 212-206-0440. Once again, the area code is 212-206-0440. Or go to their website at www.metropolitanroom.com. Voted number one jazz cabaret club by New York Magazine, the Metropolitan Room is one of the most critically acclaimed venues in New York City and is known as the home for big-name talents and rising stars. Known as a celebrity hangout, the Metropolitan Room is a high-end cabaret and jazz club and brings the best in live music to New York City every night of the week. Fabulous award-winning Broadway, TV, film, and radio performers take the stage in an intimate 115-seat elegant venue. Aside from the great highly professional artistic shows and audience, Metropolitan Room provides an exceptional appetizer and dessert menu as well as exotic and specialty drinks prepared by top New York City bartenders. The Metropolitan Room is located at 34 West 22nd Street, Conveniently located near public transportation. For information or reservations, call area code 212-206-0440. Once again, the area code is 212-206-0440. Or go to their website.